scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 15. If you want to turn there in your Bibles. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's on page 874 if you'd like to turn there. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays hands on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so. I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so. I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, and bring a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in a field, and as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, he who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. These last three weeks we have been looking at the life of the Pharisees. And again we find ourselves with them 
looking on in this text that we've read this morning. In fact, Jesus had an encounter, if you back up into the previous chapter, with them. He, uh, he in fact, dined with them there in chapter 14. And last week, um, we looked at the text in Matthew a little earlier in this chronological walkthrough where Jesus said to them, Woe to you, because you bind heavy burdens on the people, but you're not willing to lift one finger to help them. Unfortunately, I think that happens in our context of the church today as well as it did back there with the Pharisees. And there are lots of people, I think, outside the church who feel that way about the church, that it just binds heavy burdens on them and says things like, do better and try harder, but doesn't do anything to help them to know how. We talked about that last week a bit in the context when the gospel gets ripped out. The very power to have a changed heart gets taken away. But it's ironic to me that, that there are people who feel that way about the church. It ought not to be that way. And the reason I would say it ought not to be that way and the church ought not to pattern after the Pharisees and that's what sometimes causes it to be that way because of what we find now in chapter 15. The very thing that was troubling the Pharisees and the lawyers, the very thing that was, was in their craw right now about Jesus, look at what it says there. Look who he was dining with. The scripture says he was dining with the tax collectors and the sinners. And, and it says they were, more than that, it says they were drawing near to him. It wasn't like he was going out and compelling them, but they were coming close to him. They were wanting to be around him. I, I think that ought to be the way it ought to be for the church. The, the unbeliever... Ought to want, there ought to be something about our lives. The church isn't the building, you understand. It's the people. But the people gather in the building sometimes. But there ought to be a sense in which we, we don't repel people away. But there's something that causes them to want to be around in, in one sense. Now, what I want to do is I want to look at this text this morning. I want to, first of all, say something about what it means when it says tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him. Because I think it is in that particular text that um, sometimes we can, we can find some of the reason why people don't want to draw near. If we misunderstand that text, it's, it's incredibly important that we understand what it means. Now, we understand tax collectors probably pretty well. You've maybe heard me talk about that in this series. I mean, the tax collectors were, were a loathsome bunch to the, to the uh, religious leaders and to all the Jewish people. They were turncoats. They had, they had gone over to the Roman church and bought the franchises to fleece the, uh, the Jewish people. And so they were, they were not well liked. They were not well thought of. They, they were incredibly hated 
They were, the, as one said, the personification of licensed violence and legal sin and greed. That's, that's how they were viewed. And in, in many cases, that was, that was true. I mean, they were, they were rascals. Zacchaeus was a rascal. That's who it was that Jesus came seeking and saving. That's, that's the text that we had at the beginning. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. So we understand tax collectors, but I think it's important that we, we don't get messed up when it comes to tax collectors and sinners. I have trouble. I told this to my Sunday school class. I have trouble sometimes with this text, with not spending some time talking about that, particularly if I think there could be unbelievers hearing what I'm saying because they can get the wrong idea because there's a very real sense and we are all sinners here. Not in the text, the way this text is. That's not, it's not talking about believers in this text. It's not talking about those who are in Christ in this text. But there is a sense we are all sinners. There's not one of us in this room that all of the time, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do it all to the glory of God. That's my definition of sin. There's not one of us in this room that doesn't have their heart sometimes ruled by something other than Christ. That doesn't let idols get into your heart, even as a believer. So there's a sense in which, when it talks about tax collectors and sinners, you have to understand what he meant, what, what it means when it says sinners here. What this is really talking about is talking about unbelievers, but it's talking about those who live manifestly immoral lives and had questionable occupations. That's the kind of thing it means when it's talking about sinners here. People that no respectable Jew would have anything to do with. Here would be an example of that in another text. If you take Matthew 21:32, it says, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the... It doesn't say sinners there. It puts, it puts a description there. The tax collectors and the prostitutes will go into the kingdom before you. Jesus actually is saying they're going to get in the kingdom before the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But, you see, he didn't use tax collectors and sinners there. He, he inserted prostitutes. It's, it's the outcast. It, it didn't just have to do with people who were um, outcasts because of, of immoral or questionable occupations. But it even went farther than that. It went as far as to people who had certain diseases. In other words, if you had a certain disease in chapter 14, it's dropsy. Or other diseases like that. Leprosy would be in that camp. They felt like that was a sign of the sin of your life. And so it was people who would be um, of, of, of manifest immoral lives, questionable occupations, or even certain diseases. In essence, it was social and religious outcasts. That's what that text is saying when it says, Now tax collectors and sinners and, and those that were socially and religiously shunned by everyone. They were drawing near to Jesus. Unbelievers. Now it's in that context now that Jesus tells three parables. Pastor Jason just read those to us. The parable of the the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and then the parable of the prodigal son. The first two you can kind of take together and they really say somewhat the same thing. And then the third one kind of amplifies it all in the parable of the prodigal son. But probably when Jesus told that first one, you see, it says there in the Pharisees in verse 2, and the scribes grumbled. They were watching. 
They were watching the people Jesus was rubbing shoulders with. The tax collectors and the social outcasts and religious outcasts. They were coming to Jesus. They were drawing near to Him and He wasn't turning them away. And then He tells the story of the parable of the shepherd. And probably they went to Ezekiel. If you have your Bibles, if you have them, I should have looked up the page number in the Pew Bible, but if you turn to Ezekiel chapter 34, you you want to go here because we're going to read this. We're going to read a very lengthy portion of Ezekiel. But you can just imagine that these... These religious leaders, when Jesus starts to talk about a shepherd, and actually the fact that the, the inference is he's the shepherd that goes after the lost sheep, that their minds probably went to Ezekiel chapter 34. Now, I say that because, you know, don't write these Pharisees off too quickly. They were very learned people. They knew Old Testament Scripture. They had much of it memorized. They didn't have all kinds of copies. They had it memorized. They had it put to memory. And so they went back probably to this text and thought about this text. Let me read it to you. It says, The word of the Lord came to me. The Son of Man prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, all shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. You see that? The lost you have not sought. See why that text might have come to their mind when he talked about the lost sheep? So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or to seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, Hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts. Since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Those are incredible that's an incredible strong statement to the to the to the under shepherds of the shepherd God who were not doing their job in the Old Testament. They were not caring for the people. It was the same as what's happening now where they load heavy burdens on the people, but they won't lift one finger to help them. They were shepherds who were not shepherding. They were shepherds who were concerned about themselves and not what they ought to have been concerned about, the people. You see it? You see how that might have come to their mind? Now, go a little farther. 
Because of that, God says something and it's powerful. And it connects with what we have today. Look at verse 11. It says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, this is God speaking, I will search for my sheep and will seek them. You see the word again? Seek. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep, that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. A seeking God, a pursuing God here is going after people. And then if you go down into verse 22, you find where that culminates. How He seeks out those. In verse 22 it says, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I, the Lord, I have spoken. See any problems in that text as we get toward the end? Who does he say is going to come? My servant David? See any problem with that? This was written 500 years after David died. It's not talking about King David. It's talking about the one he pointed to. It's talking about King Jesus. That's who he was going to send. That's the shepherd that was going to come and go after the lost sheep and bring him back into the fold. This morning we're going to talk about a pursuing God. A pursuing God. And the Pharisees, I think, probably in their mind, had this kind of picture as Jesus begins to talk about that. The under-shepherds didn't do their job. And so God sent His Son, the true shepherd, to go after the sheep, to seek and to save those that are lost. Now what I want to do this morning is I just want to look at the contrast. I want to look at the contrast between those who put heavy loads upon the people and won't lift one finger to help them versus that shepherd, Jesus. There's a vast difference. And my prayer this morning is that you will see the heart of Christ. You will see the heart of that shepherd and be drawn to it this morning. The first point, the first difference, goes back to last Sunday. It's the idea that, that they laid heavy burdens on the people, but they wouldn't lift one finger to help with those. Remember I said last week that, it's interesting, those heavy burdens that they laid on the people, were, were they took the law and then they added things to the law and they said, go do it, fulfill this. Try harder. Work faster. Get it done. But they didn't do anything to tell the people how. 
They didn't lift any finger to help them. They just said, do better. Try harder. Work faster. That's what these shepherds that were all about themselves did. Raised up a standard, but gave them no help of how to meet it. And in fact, they couldn't meet it. It, it did lay. There's a reason they felt a heavy burden, because that, that was a burden. And remember last week I pointed out to you that, that when Jesus declared his standard, he took not the things they'd added to it. There were things that these people had added on that were wrong. But he took the law and he went farther than the law. Remember? Remember the two passages we read? We read the one about, about uh, murder. And he says, if you, even, if you even have anger in your heart towards someone, you've murdered them. And then the one on adultery, and he says, if you've even looked with a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. So how is it that, that these people, these tax collectors and sinners drew near to one who made it, made it even stronger in one sense? I mean... It wasn't just the law, don't murder, but your heart behind what you feel about somebody that can be murdered. He raised the bar in one sense, so wouldn't it seem that he laid a heavier burden on them? The difference is that Jesus comes to help. The difference is those shepherds lifted no finger to help. And in fact, the help they gave was not help. Try harder, run faster, work harder. Jesus comes to redeem. He comes to redeem, but He comes to transform the very heart so that we begin to fulfill those requirements because our heart's been changed, but our heart has been changed by Him. And the very strength that enables our heart to not have anger and to not lust in our hearts. He comes to help. He comes to give grace. He comes to give strength. Perfectly, will we do it? No. But He covered that as well. He didn't say do it perfectly so you can inherit eternal life. He gives us eternal life. He perfectly did what we can't do. And, and we stand in that even as we seek to live out what He's called us to live out. We live in security even as we live out imperfectly this trek of our hearts and of the law. The difference between the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees was they didn't help. They didn't shepherd. We have one who shepherds. We have Jesus. He's come to help us, to enable us, to give us resources and grace to live for Him. Now, it's interesting uh, in this text that, that we go on farther than that to see more about this shepherd. Not only does He help us, not only does He come and, and lift a finger, but He lifts him, His whole self He comes. That's, that's what the incarnation is about. God didn't stay in heaven and say, run faster, try harder, work longer, whatever. But He came and He entered in. He came to help us. He came to aid us. He comes to us. But secondly, 
He comes for a reason. He comes to pursue our repentance. We talked about this idea of Him seeking. Um, before we get into that fully, and, and we've looked at it, how He comes, let me, let me show you the contrast a minute. Let me show you the contrast between this one, this shepherd, who comes to pursue our repentance, to, to help us, to seek us, so that we might seek Him. Look at the contrast. The contrast is in chapter 14 of Luke. If you go back to Luke again, chapter 14, let me quickly show you this contrast. I won't go into it in depth. We won't read all of this, the Scripture. But you understand, when Luke wrote, he didn't, he didn't write chapter 14 one day and then chapter 15. People put those breaks in where they thought they should be. But this is all one thought, really, from chapter 14 to chapter 15. Luke is building a case here. He's giving us a picture. And the picture he gets is the reason that the religious leaders would not live a finger to help and the reason that Ezekiel chapter 34 was as true then or in this day as it was back then is because of the hearts of these religious leaders. And you see that heart here. Um, you, you begin to see on the Sabbath in verse 14, look at that, or, chap, or chapter 14, verse 1, it says, One Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees. Now, this is kind of a side point, so hold on to it for a minute. But Jesus was not a respecter of persons. Either way. Because in chapter 15, it says that tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to them and the inferences they ate together. But here in chapter 14, Jesus goes to the house of a Pharisee to dine with him. He didn't shun them. He didn't leave them out. He went to them, just like later he, he, he would go to the tax collectors and the sinners. Equally, he went to them. But look what happens. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. Now this was one of those um, maimed people who were social outcasts and religious outcasts because they thought his dropsy was because of his sin. He was one of those untouchable people. And the Pharisees, when Jesus heals him, are disgusted that he heals them. How could he do that? How could he let this man touch him? And why would he touch him? You see the heart of these Pharisees? Do you see where they live? They live in a world about self-exaltation. In other words, they don't want this man with dropsy anywhere near them because he could do nothing for them. They can do nothing for them. He can't prop them up. And so they're indifferent and they're contemptuous toward him. But it goes farther than that. Jesus continues to tell stories. And every time he tells these stories, it's, it's, it's coming against these Pharisees and their hearts and their indifference and their contemptuousness. It starts out with a man with dropsy, but then he goes into the parable of the wedding feast. And, and he shows more about their hearts. These, these people who, who Jesus has come to dine with, who, who are disgusted that he's healed this man, because he's an outcast. Jesus reveals to their heart, when you go to a wedding feast, don't, don't seek the seat of honor first. 
Well, what's he saying? That's what they did. They wanted, they only wanted to touch people. They only wanted to deal with people. They only wanted to help people who helped them. That was their hearts. That was the way they operated. That's why they were, they were not shepherds. Even their shepherding was a way to promote themselves and to promote their advancement of their agenda. And here he reveals it and he talks about the parable of the wedding feast. And then he goes on a little farther and he talks about the parable of the great banquet. And he he gets more pointed with them. And it says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. You see, all of those people kind kind of made the Pharisees feel better by association. You know what that's like, don't you? You get around somebody and because of their title or their stature or whatever they are, they kind of boost your stature. That's, that's who they were inviting, the people that would boost their stature, their rich neighbors, relatives. But he says, lest they invite you in return and you be repaid. In other words, there's a, there's a payoff. Why do we do it? For the payoff. They were in it for the payoff. But then it goes on. But when you give a feast... Invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. It's going at their hearts. It's going at the hearts of these people. And then he goes on and tells another story about a great banquet in which many people were invited. Many people were invited. And that reference would be to the Pharisees and the religious people invited. But they give excuses for not coming. And then it says, Jesus says, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes, down in verse 21. And then the city, and bring in again the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. That's the contrast. Jesus pursues the poor and the crippled, and the lame, and the blind. He pursues those who know their need. He pursues them. He comes after them. Not so with the Pharisees. Not so with the religious leaders of that day. Not so. They weren't shepherds. Jesus was the shepherd. He was the one who pursued them. And and this morning I would say to you, Jesus pursues the repentance of all who know they're poor and they're crippled and they're lame and they're blind, whether it be literally or figuratively. Those who seek Him, those who are willing to come, He first has come seeking them. He's always proceeds anyone seeking. He's seeking those who are seeking. He pursues their repentance. And then thirdly, when they repent, when they, when they do repent, you go back to chapter 15. He rejoices over their repentance. Jesus rejoices over their repentance. I, I hope this morning you will get this. If you don't get anything else I say, you will get this. Because three different times in these parables in chapter 15, Jesus talks about the rejoicing of the Son and all of heaven over the repentance of those he is seeking. I fear 
I fear often that there are people who, who just think I'm too big a rascal. I'm, I'm too far gone. I've done too much. I somehow have to kind of appease my way back in a ways before. That's not what the gospel's about. Look at what it says. Look at the rejoicing. Look at verse 7 of chapter 15. After the man went out and got the one sheep and he put it on his shoulders and he comes back, it says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The rejoicing of heaven of one of those lame and crippled and blind and poor who come into the kingdom. You go down a little farther, the parable of the lost coin. It says in verse 10, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. One. Individualistic. One. Satan comes and says, we're too big a rascal. Too big a rascal. I have to somehow work my way back in for a time. Get back in a ways. In fact, some think I never can. And so they don't even attempt. I say to you, if your desire of your heart is to want to come, if your desire this morning is to want to come and, and get close to this Jesus, He is more willing to let you get close than you are willing to get close. He came after the tax collectors and the sinners. I came to seek and to save the lost. That whole two chapters here is all about that. And I say to you this morning, again, look at his joy. Look at it in the third story. The third story that we find. The scripture says in verse 20, this is now the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son decides to go home. And it says, And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father would have none of it. Where did he see him? A long way off. A long way off. God sees us a long way off. He sees us when we're saying, I can't come back. He sees us when, he, when we want to, but we don't feel worthy to. He sees us. And His joy is that we have a desire to seek Him. Because He's first seeking us. He's seeking the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. The joy. You see, the difference between Jesus and the Pharisees was that the Pharisees rejoiced in the death of the wicked. They got their due. And to be honest with you, part of the reason I think today why many people don't want to draw close to the church is because that attitude can rise up. We bemoan the wickedness and the ungodliness of our world. And we long for the day when God gets them. That was not the heart of Jesus. He didn't rejoice in the getting. He rejoiced in those. He rejoiced in those who sought Him 
the lame and the blind. This morning, I, I don't know how to say this. I, I want to just keep saying it till I say it in a way that connects. If somehow you're here this morning and you feel like a rascal and you feel like you've been such a rascal and, and maybe nobody around you knows it, but in your heart you know it. You just think, I can't, I can't get there. You've got it wrong. You've got it wrong. If you want to get there, if you want to seek Him, He's seeking you and more interested in seeking you than you are seeking Him today. You merely need to come acknowledging your need. That is what it's about. That's what entrance in the kingdom is about. They drew near to Jesus because they sensed that about Him. It was safe to come near to Him. I pray this morning that you sense that. You sense it's safe to come. That you won't stay away. You won't think I need to spend some time away and clean some things up and then come. But you will come to Him and let Him do the work. You see, that's the difference. It isn't try harder, run faster, work harder. That's what the Pharisees did. That's the burden they laid on people. That's not what Jesus says. Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the declaration we hear from Him. He'll change our hearts. He'll help us. He'll do what you know you can't do. You're right, you can't do it. But He can. He can. And He will. And He will extend His grace in that regard. Now I want to close with this. The final contrast really and what Jesus does I, th- I think what he does is he tells those two parables he tells the parable of the lost sheep tells the parable of the lost coin they're kind of the same but then he amplifies it in the parable of the prodigal son because he comes to the end of that and where I want you to look at the end of that is down in verse 25 we know the first part of the story pretty well the younger son goes off he wants to come back. He comes back. His father shows, throws a great banquet for him. But sometimes we stop reading there. We don't read farther. Tim Keller, I think, has helped us to read farther in his writings about the prodigal son in his book, The Prodigal God. And he writes, he writes about it well. But listen to what it says. It says, Now his older son was in the field, and he came and he drew near to the house. He heard the music and the dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. Now look at the response of the son. Jesus was speaking to the religious leaders. He was thinking about them when he wrote this. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. Jesus ate with the Pharisees as well as he did with those who were the tax collectors and the sinners. He dined with both. He went out to them. His father came out to his son and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he he wouldn't even say brother, This son of yours, the indicting finger of this older brother to his father, this son of yours, came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes. Now, now why did that get included 
How does he know about prostitutes? I don't know that. I don't know this, but I, I do know human hearts. And you wonder if secretly in his own heart he might have had some allurement to that himself. Why does he talk about that if he wasn't thinking about it himself? If he wasn't dwelling on it himself? If there wasn't a sense in which, yeah, you, you, you understand what I mean by that? It was, his heart was wrong. And sometimes on the outside we can do it all right, wrong, or excuse me, all right, but on the inside it can be, be wrong. And I didn't intend to tell this, Matthew, so hang on just a second before you start to play. I, this, this is a perfect illustration of that. When, when I was in Kansas pastoring, let me, let me tell this story. This is how sometimes we can, we can paint it on the outside, but our heart is far from it. There was a, there was a young farmer in, in my church. He was about my age. He was, a, he was a fairly successful farmer and had done things right and well. And he would never think, he would never think, ever, it wouldn't even cross his mind in the sense of, of, of the possibility of doing it. It, might, it would cross his mind in other ways, but of starting his combine on a Sunday. didn't matter if it rained for six days and Sunday was the first sunshiny day. He would not do it. But he would sit in my living room on a Sunday afternoon and just about go crazy begrudging all of the farmers who were lined up right across the road at the elevator. In fact, he couldn't even enjoy his day because of how he begrudged it. It's the same thing. Same thing, I think, in this elder brother's heart. He did it right on the outside, but inside he, lo- he uh, secretly longed to participate in it. You see, that's, that's why Jesus went beyond, beyond murder to hatred and beyond adultery to lust in the heart. Because it's a heart issue. And as we read on, it says, You killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad for your this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Period. The story stops. Keller has helped me to see this. The story stops. Why does it stop there? One son went in to the party. One son had not yet gone in. I think it was to the Pharisees at that point. Okay. Are you coming in? Are you coming in? Are you going to stay on the outside? Same way to us. Are we, are we coming in? Or do we have a heart like the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Are, are we in? Is our heart really changed? Is our heart really where it ought to be? Are we for the lost and the lame and the broken and the blind? Are we people who go after the tax collectors and the outcasts, the sinners of the world? Is that our heart? I pray it is. I pray we're not like the elder brother and don't remain on the outside. But we as a body of believers so see the heart of Christ and are so moved by his heart that it moves ours as well.
we're going to sing. And the answer to that is the gospel. To see it. Do you see it? Do you see that He is seeking you more than you are seeking Him? And He first sought us or we wouldn't seek Him. And if you are seeking Him and you think you can't get in, you're wrong. He's seeking you. Come in. Come in. Come in. Let's stand and sing. take risks to move into other people's lives to to live lives where people people want want to be near us want to hear about the treasure we have God help us help us not to be like the Pharisees to have a heart like Christ in Jesus name Amen Bless you, you're dismissed.